God, there are such words of hope in these pages this morning, and so I pray that as, as we open up your word, that you would illuminate the truth that, uh, that you have for us through your Holy Spirit to receive today, uh, that we may know in a deeper way that you are our Messiah, uh, that you love us, that you are with us. And God, I pray that, that my words would just be uh, a tool that you can use to illuminate your truth in our hearts the way we need to hear it, that we might leave this place closer to you than when we came. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, take out your Bible. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible, take out the one in front of you, so there's no excuse. Everybody gets a Bible here today. Um, if you did not, if you don't own a Bible, take the one in front of you home. And I mean that sincerely. That is our gift to you uh, so that you can take God's word with you wherever you go. And our reading today is going to be in Mark chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 27. We're going to move all the way through chapter 9, verse 8. So there's a lot here, um, but it is a fascinating passage and narrative um, that, that we're going to climb through together and see where God is calling us in the midst of all of it. So uh, Mark 8, 27, uh, and we'll go all the way through Mark chapter 9, verse 8. Now there are, as you're looking that up, there, there are some things in life that you know, and then there are things you know, right? You kind of know what I'm saying? Like, uh, for example, I've shared this one before. I, I knew growing up that my mother's curling iron was hot. And I knew that because my mom told me it was hot, and then I touched it. <laughs> and now I know. I knew, but now I know, right? Like, like maybe if you're, you're married or you're a parent, you may have known. Like, we've got a whole premarital process here at St. John's. If, if, if you uh, have your wedding here, um, where you'll meet with a counselor and you'll go through all these things to try to prepare you uh, for the challenges that are ahead. And, and my guess is that if you're married or you're a parent, you probably knew on some level that it was hard, and then you got married, <laughs> And then you became a parent, or then that child became a teenager, <laughs> and you knew it was hard, but now you know that it's hard. And this goes lots of different directions. Maybe there's a new restaurant in town. You know that they have good food. Everybody's talking about it, right? But then you had lunch there. You experienced it. You knew, and now you know it's really good. This this goes both ways, this knowing thing. We, we know things, but then we experience them. And we often realize as we experience them that what we knew was actually a lot more limited than we thought. And that's the thought that I want you to have in your mind as we get into our reading today in the Gospel of Mark. Today is our final Sunday in our series. We're calling The Way, um, but I don't want you to get caught up in that. We're just going to change the title next week as we enter into the season of Lent. We're going to continue this journey we've started at the beginning of the year going through the Gospel of Mark. It won't end until Easter as we continue the story of Jesus coming into the world and calling people to come to me. And we've seen this play out in big ways and in small ways. We've seen uh, Jesus call the 12 disciples to come and follow him. We've seen things like him performing miracles and him teaching and him calming a storm and him healing people. Just two weeks ago, we, we learned of the miraculous story of Jesus raising a 12-year-old girl who was sick. And she was so sick, she died from her illness. And he raised her from the dead. And so we've seen all of this. And in the 
midst of all this incredible uh, journey that we've been on, in all of these experiences, Mark is about to zero in on something that on the surface might not seem like as pivotal of a moment as all these other ones have been. It's actually in the midst of the mundane of everyday life. Take a look at verse 27 as we begin. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And what's true, we'll stop right there, for the disciples and Jesus is often the same thing that's true for us. The most meaningful conversations don't always happen on the ends of a big moment. I think about as a parent, like, like if, if parents, have you ever sat down with your kids and said, we're going to have a big moment right now? <laughs> have you ever tried that? We're going to have a big conversation. We're going to talk about deep things. Like, that's not usually where this happens. It's usually on the road somewhere. It's in the minivan. It's, it's, it's at the time that you least expect it. And so that's kind of the setting that we have here is Jesus and the disciples are walking. But Jesus knows that this is a moment. And so he asks them a question, he takes advantage of the space that they have. He says, he says, on the way, he asks them, who do people say that I am? Remember, he's getting really popular at this point. Who are people saying that I am? Jesus asked the disciples this. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others say one of the prophets. Now, you should know something. We missed something last week that happened, and so I just want to catch you up really quick. John the Baptist is dead now. Uh, he was killed. He was, he, he was actually beheaded by uh, King Herod. And one of many reasons why that's important is that it represents the popularity of Jesus because John and Jesus are cousins. He was sent to prepare the way for him. He's calling people to turn from evil ways. And, and, and by being associated with Jesus, it's carrying real consequences. For John, it's carried his death, the consequence is that he's died. And so, so you should know that as you think about all the things that are floating around, the things that people think they know, but they don't really know about Jesus, right? Like some people think he's John the Baptist. They heard he died. They think he's like, he's resurrected in some way and now he's got these magical powers and that's why he's performing miracles. Some people think he's the Old Testament prophet Elijah who had, had performed miracles himself and was swept up into this, this chariot of fire into heaven and, and was said to come again uh, for the Messiah's return. Others assumed he was a prophet who just came to speak a good word word of God. A lot of people today think Jesus that way, right? Um, they, they don't think anything negative about him, but they don't think anything divine about him either. He's a prophet. He's got good wisdom. It comes from God. And so these are all the ideas that are floating around about who Jesus is. These are the things that, that people think they know, but they don't really yet know. And Jesus isn't just interested in what they think, as you see the word they there, but he takes it a step further as they walk, as the minivan drives around and the disciples are in the back. He asks another question. He says, what about you? Who do you say that I am. And the last question that he asked, everybody answered, but in this question, you see only one person answers. Take a look at verse 29. Peter says, you are the Messiah. It's the right answer. It's the right answer. Ding, ding, ding. This is who he is. Nobody else will say it. Peter will say it. He's right. And here's how Jesus responds. Jesus warned them, don't tell anyone. 
Now, do you understand why? Because I don't understand why. <laughs> like, why would Jesus tell them not to say anything? Well, the reason why is because they know, but they don't know. Not yet. If you haven't noticed, if you've been on this journey with us, you'll see that Jesus does a bit of shaping the narrative that people are learning about him as he goes about his ministry. Just an example of that we saw was two weeks ago. I shared before, there was this 12-year-old girl, right? Her father found Jesus, brought him to their house to heal his little girl. And, and after he heals him, or he, after Jesus heals her, what does he say? He says two things. He says, get her something to eat. And he says, don't tell anyone about what just happened. But just before that, Jesus healed a woman in the crowd as he was on his way to that person's house. And this woman had had a bleeding condition for 12 years that made her unclean. And what that meant was that she was ostracized from her, from her community, probably from her family. She was considered unclean by the religious community. And so she heard Jesus could heal, but she did not feel worthy to even come into the presence of Jesus. And so if you remember the story, what she did is she reached out when he wasn't even paying attention because he's going through the crowd, and she touched his cloak, and instantly she was healed, and it was miraculous, and Jesus acknowledged it. And the one thing he didn't say to her that he said to the little girl's family is he did not tell her not to say anything. He wanted that story to get out. And one of the reasons I think he wanted that story to get out was because Jesus wanted people to hear about Jesus being the person that those who feel unworthy and unclean, those who have done everything they can do and they just can't find relief, Jesus wanted them to know, you are the ones I came for. Come to me. And so Jesus does this. And, and so the, the little girl, she being raised from the dead, that's just a prelude to what he's come into the world to do for everyone. It's what he's going to do when he conquers the cross and he rises from the grave. That's just the beginning. So in a similar way, we're seeing here, Jesus doesn't argue with Peter because Peter's right. He is the Messiah. It's not all those other ideas. But while Peter knows, he doesn't what? No, he doesn't know. So take a look at verse 31. Jesus begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke plainly about this. Plainly. Just in case you were wondering if they understood, he spoke plainly. Now, We've been on a journey through the Gospel of Mark. This is a pivotal moment in Mark's Gospel. It's the first time that Jesus' disciples identify him as the Messiah, but it's also the first time he explains everything that's about to happen. He says, he says I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise. And it, and it says here that he said it Plainly, The Greek word means left nothing uncovered. My loose translation is explain it to me like I'm in kindergarten. <laughs> That's what Jesus did. In case you're wondering if they understood what was about to happen. They heard it. Peter heard it. And while Peter believed that Jesus is the Messiah, he knows this, but he didn't know all of that. And so at the end of verse 32, it says Peter took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him. And that might cause you to ask the question I'm wondering, and that's why. 
Jesus laid it all out there, right? He's gonna, it's going to be brutal. I'm going to die. But in the end, it's all going to be okay, right? Didn't he say that part too? I mean, look at your Bible. It's in front of you. Didn't Jesus say, it's, I'm going to rise, right? I'm going to rise. Didn't Peter hear that last part? And he spoke it plainly. But then I think, when was the last time I went through something hard and significant in my life that a plain and simple answer made me feel all better about? I mean, think about, your, think about your experience. Maybe you're going through a situation right now where you're in the middle of a, of a relationship that's, that's divided. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you're really sick. Maybe, maybe you're depressed. Maybe you're angry. Maybe you've lost someone to death recently. And I want to ask you, how does a plain answer sound if somebody comes to you and says, you know, I know it's really hard right now, but, but eventually everything's going to be okay. I mean, you might know that that's true, but you don't know in that moment, right? Like, like you, don't, you don't know. That's not anything of your experience because who wants to suffer? Nobody wants to. There's even less people would raise their hand than the people that raise their hand and said they're watching the Super Bowl this afternoon, right? Nobody wants to suffer, and yet, at the very same time, nobody escapes suffering. Not even Jesus, and if he won't escape it, the, the conclusion that Peter's a smart guy that he comes to is that neither will those who follow him, neither will Peter. And Peter has a problem with that. Peter has no problem identifying Jesus as a Messiah. Jesus is going to save him. He thinks that's great. That's what Peter wants. Unlike the other disciples, Peter is bold enough to say it. And I think about many of us, right? Many of us have that same boldness of Peter, right? Somebody asks you, oh, are, you a, are you a Christian? And you'll say, I am. You might even wear shirts that say that. You might even have a bumper sticker that says that. You might only post spiritual things on your Instagram to tell the world that you're bold enough to say that Jesus is my Messiah. It's a bold thing for Peter to say that. But guess what else is bold? For him to say, Jesus, I don't like this road that you're going to be leading. I don't like the road that you've just described brings salvation. I don't like suffering. I don't like rejection. I don't like pain. I don't like death. And then resurrection. Then resurrection. And I don't know about you, but I can relate to Peter. Because I really don't like those things either. And yet, isn't that where we need Jesus to be our Messiah? In the moments of our own suffering, our own rejection, our own death? That's what Jesus wants them to know. And so verse 33, Jesus turns and he looks at the disciples and he rebukes Peter. Peter rebuked Jesus. Jesus rebukes Peter, right? This is like a heated moment. This is like one of those things, you ever been to somebody's house and they start arguing and you're like, should I leave now? Like, like, that's what's going on here, right? This is a heated argument, right? And so Jesus rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. He calls him a name. He says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This sounds harsh, but this is what Jesus is saying. You're only concerned about the glory, Peter. God is concerned about the suffering, too. God is concerned about the suffering too. And, and I say that because if you're suffering, I want you to hear it. God cares about you. God cares about what it is that you're going through. 
And what Peter doesn't realize in this moment is that if he skips over all of the hard parts, he's going to fail to see that those are the places that we need a Messiah the most. It's where we need a Messiah, which is why Jesus' plain answers were not enough. They weren't enough for Peter. Frankly, they weren't enough for any of the disciples. They all deserted him when it all actually happened. But thankfully, simple answers are not what save us. Simple answers are not what save us because a Messiah is not an answer to a question. It is a person who is present. It is God's presence with us. When simple answers aren't enough, isn't that what you really need anyway? You know why it doesn't help when you sell sell somebody, or maybe it's been told to you they're going through a really hard time. You know why it doesn't help when they say it's all going to be okay? Because in that moment, it's not okay. There's nothing about the situation that's okay. The divided relationship, it's not okay. The sickness is not okay. The pain of the loss is more than that person can bear. Friends, Jesus came to enter into that moment, not just to tell you it's all going to be okay. It is all going to be okay. We know this, but he senses that he needs to be present with us in the middle of it. And so he enters into those concerns. He names those concerns, and not as an outsider, but he came to experience them fully so that he could overcome them. And that's why he continues in verse 34. It says, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will what? Lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will what? Save it. Now again, If you read that at face value, this sounds harsh. Jesus is telling his followers to lose everything for him. And yet if we want to have a plain and simple conversation, the plain and simple truth is that you're going to lose everything anyway, aren't you? And so am I. We all are. So what Jesus is saying here is that That when you lose it in him and with him and for him, what you'll find is that instead of losing anything, you will gain everything. You'll gain your soul, as it says in verse 36. What good is it for somebody to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? What can anybody give in exchange for their soul? This side of eternity is limited. It's finite, which sounds hopeless because it is hopeless. Unless, by beginning to loosen our grip on those things today, God might put in its place something that will last forever. And do you know what God replaces what we hold on to in this world with? You know what he replaces it with? It's very simple. Love replaces it with love. And I'm not just saying that because it's Valentine's Day on Wednesday. It's literally what what Jesus said. He said, love God and love who? Others. Love your neighbor, right? He says, this is everything. Everything here hinges on those two things. It can be summarized in those two things. It can summarize in one thing, the word love. That's what it's all about. About because that is the only thing that you can take with you and it's the only thing that you get to do now that you're going to be doing for all of eternity. It's what heaven looks like. 
It's loving other people, and it's loving God for all of eternity. And we know this. When somebody's on their deathbed, if they have hope for the future life to come, if they have any hope at all, it's not for a bigger house or a shinier car or a better resume or any of those things. Their hope is really twofold. They want to see those they love, and they want to meet Jesus face to face. We know this. Jesus says you don't have to wait to experience it in a small way and even in big ways to experience this hope, to know this hope that when we follow Jesus, our purpose in our life changes and becomes preparation for heaven. Our assignment, our purpose becomes all about love. And friends, that's hard because we're all like Peter. We all want a Messiah and nobody wants to suffer. And yet, if you've ever loved anyone in your life, you know that to love is to suffer, isn't it? You will give something up if you invite somebody else close enough into your life to say that you love them. Love requires it. And yet when we do, and we do it, and we place our, our lives into the hands of Jesus, what we begin to experience is that he came to be our Messiah and our suffering too, to be with us until, like him, we too will rise again. It's both. And I got to experience that and just kind of taste it a little bit this weekend. I have to tell you, I, I, so I have, I have several suits in my closet. The problem is that none of them fit me. <laughs> except one. I've got, I've got, you know, the suit that I bought when I ate too much pizza. <laughs> and, and, and I don't get rid of it because I like pizza and I'm just afraid I might need it later, right? And, and, and then I've got suits that I wore when I was in college, right? And those don't fit anymore either. And so I really just now, I've got just this one suit that, that fits. And between Friday and Saturday of, of just this weekend, I had two funerals, one on Friday and one on Saturday. And then Friday night, I took my daughter Sophie to the daddy-daughter dance down at the Abbey. There's a picture. Um, and it was, she was even more adorable than the picture is. Um, it was, if, if anybody, I just, just a shameless plug for this. I have no investment in it except we've gone for three years. It is awesome. If you have a daughter, take your daughter to it. Um, it's, it's really great. I know some of you from church were there. Um, and so it was lots of fun to celebrate and, and spend time with you guys. And so, so anyway, we, we, we did this on Friday night, had a funeral earlier on Friday and had a funeral in the morning. And so it was a busy weekend to say the least. And I found myself in the midst of all of it, I was reflecting on the different roles that I had to play. And I, and I found myself reflecting on this in a spiritual moment when I was ironing my shirts. I was ironing these three different shirts that I was going to be wearing because, because each one, the funeral and, and the daddy-daughter dance and the next funeral, they were all sacred moments. They were moments that I knew I was being called to be fully present in, to focus on. And, and to be just completely honest, it was not easy all weekend long. At the funeral, I was thinking about my daughter. At, 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 the, at the dance, there were many times that I was thinking about those families and, and the people that, that they lost, their, their loved ones. But, but you know what I wore to each one of those? I wore the same suit, so I brought my suit coat. I wore the same suit. And so at the dance, I'll tell you, I wasn't worried at the funeral because that's, 
that, that, that was fine. But at the dance, I was a little worried because I don't have another suit that fits me right now. And you can't tell in the pictures, but there's a lot of glitter on Sophie's dress. <laughs> and this year, like the first two years, she didn't really know how to dance and she was really shy and all of that. Well, she's done this before. She didn't even want to eat. She wanted to dance. Like, like it was like the whole time, right? And, and, and so, so I, was, I, was, I was a little, little worried because, because I don't have another suit, <laughs> right? And, and so, so anyway, we get to the dance and everything is going great. It was, it was the best dance yet. Again, we had church friends there. My friend that I grew up with brought his daughter um, and we were together and, and I kept my suit in order <laughs> until the end when Sophie and I noticed that right outside the ballroom that we were in, the resort had these, these open fires and they were offering an opportunity for kids to go out and make s'mores. And of course, Sophie was going to want to go have a s'more. And in that moment, I'm just, in my brain, this is what went through my brain. I thought, I really want her to do this, but if I go out there, I'm going to smell like smoke at the funeral tomorrow. <laughs> And, and as I thought those thoughts, I realized I have to go out to the bonfire. I have to go out to the bonfire because in that moment, going out to the bonfire was what it meant for me to be fully present with my daughter in that moment. And so we went out there and we made s'mores and it was wonderful. And guess what? My suit smelled like smoke, and I know Febreze. And several of you told me this already at the first service. I need to buy some. I get it. I didn't know that, okay? <laughs> it smelled a little bit like smoke. Now, hold that thought, okay? You're going to see where I'm going with this as we read the last part of the passage here. This comes six days after this conversation between Peter and Jesus. It comes six days after the Messiah talk and the dying and the rising and all of that stuff happens. And, and here's what happens in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters for you. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Verse 6, he did not know what to say they were so frightened. Just leave it, leave it there for a second. I just want to point out, Peter didn't know what to say, and yet he said something. <laughs> just kind of gives you an insight to Peter, okay? And so that's what he said, and, and, and here's what happened, verse 7. Suddenly a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud that said, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Now, can you, can you even imagine what an incredible sight that must have been? What an incredible experience. I mean, don't knock Peter. Of course he wanted to build a shelter there. Of course he wanted to stay there. And, and I get it because I just got to be completely honest with you. I would rather go to 10,000 daddy-daughter dances with my daughter than a single funeral where I have to say goodbye to somebody that I love. 
I would rather go to 10,000 daddy-daughter dances than that. But then I realized that the funeral is temporary. If I listen to him, the way the voice spoke to Peter, James, and John, my faith tells me that the funeral is temporary and heaven is going to be like 10,000 daddy-daughter dances that never end. Literally an eternal dance with our heavenly Father. And that reminds me that until that day comes, I need to be at both. I need to be at both, and so do you. And so I wore my suit, and I steamed it and all that stuff, but to be honest, it still smelled slightly like smoke, and I went to the funeral that day. See, what Peter didn't realize, what he didn't know, was that Jesus was calling the disciples to do the same thing when they came off the mountain. He said, you can't stay here because I've called you to come down. I've called you to come down, to have the smell of salvation radiating off of you in your presence into a world that is dying, that you are called to be like me. Step into the hard places. Follow me as I go before you so that when they smell like the aroma of God's love, they too will know that no matter how hard life gets, this is temporary and like Jesus you too will rise again and you know the best people to carry that message to someone who's hurting it's someone who's hurt before as well it's somebody who's been through suffering they know my guess is you've been through that and so the call of Jesus is to be that hope to someone else amen amen The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire. To dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. For he will conceal me in his shelter in the day of adversity. And he will hide me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Then my head will be high above my enemies around me and I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord.